Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to the course on the Book of Lost Tales, Part 1. Uh, so I am very excited for this class. Um, I was, uh, I've been harboring hopes secret well okay i've been keeping them a deadly secret i have to admit but sort of secret hopes that we would get to do this um i think that the history of middle earth series the 12 volume history of middle earth series that christopher tolkien uh has published are just some of some truly remarkable works in a bunch of ways they're remarkable works for tolkien fans um simply because of their content the 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 tolkien writings that we get uh, in those books that we had never gotten otherwise uh, are just fantastic. And more than that, of course, the look into Tolkien's world, not just the world of Middle-earth, which we can see in The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion, but the, the look of the sort of the, in a sense, though not quite, the backstage world um, of uh, Tolkien and his writing process. Um, it has been really, really fascinating. It's, it's, they're, they're fascinating to read. And I know that, you know, for as, as, as often as I've said, you know, that I understand how people have a hard time often reading The Silmarillion uh, and how, you know, one of the things that I really want to do that I will consider, you know, my career to have been worthwhile if I can help a bunch of people get through and come to appreciate the Silmarillion who had never been able to appreciate it before. The History of Middle-Earth series is kind of a, you know, it's like the final frontier, you know, um, and so I am very excited to get a chance to uh, to look at some of these works, uh, starting at the beginning. Of course, uh, that is always, uh, as I've said before, my own preference is to start at the beginning uh, and go through. Uh, so, you know, I don't know that we will do all of them, uh, you know, and, and in what order. We certainly will be doing other works uh, sprinkled in uh, among them. We've already elected the book that we're going to move on to after we finish this book, uh, which is Dune by Frank Herbert. So I'm very excited about that, too. So it'll be fun mixing and matching and uh, doing a whole bunch of different things. Uh, but I am very excited for the chance to look at the history of Middle-earth together. And I think that it's something I know I always learn, you know, it, it, almost even in a selfish way. I'm excited about it because I always learn so much. Uh, the Unfinished Tales class that we did, um, you know, just recently... I think I learned as much in that class uh, as in any class I've taught or taken uh, in quite a long time. That was uh, that course was uh, was wonderful for me, and of course I've said several times what a revelation the Ender's Game class was to me too. Um, so I'm excited. I'm excited to get a chance to do what I've never done before, which is rigorously go through uh, and sort of teach my way through uh, books in the in the in the history of Middle Earth series. So uh, I am. Uh, very excited to begin that with you guys here tonight. Um, now, um, uh, let's um, start off uh, sort of slightly more prosaically. I want to make sure to in that everybody is sort of comfortable with uh, the interface that we have and sort of knows how these works. In case any of you who have come here are new to the Mythgard Academy classes, let me just sort of explain briefly uh, how this works. Those of you who are attending here live... Um, uh, you can interact if you have questions or comments or want to make observations. I encourage you to do so. On your little control panel, you will have a questions box that you can type things in, and when you type them in and hit return, um, they come straight to me, so I'll be able to see those. Uh, there are a lot of people here tonight, so I'm not going to be able to read every single comment. Um, 
And uh, a question that new people often ask is, uh, you know, where can I find the things that the other people are typing in? And the answer is nowhere. Those are, that, that, that's a mechanism for you to communicate directly with me so I can see all the things that you guys say, but you can't see. It's not a chat interface. However, if you would like a chat interface, if you, if you would like to be able to talk uh, with, you know, talk virtually with the other students uh, who are live here in the room with us tonight, um, we can do that. We can facilitate that. If you go to mythgard.org, my org, our homepage, um, and click on the Academy tab, you'll find the Book of Lost Tales page, and there is an interface uh, on, the, on the bottom right-hand corner of that page uh, for our chat um, interface. So you can uh, chat with, you know, there should be other people live from the class there in the chat room even now um, that you can talk to, so you have the opportunity to do that. And also, one other thing um, that I would say is a new thing. Um, that we have uh, that we have this term. Um, in fact, a, a new thing which has just been linked to today for the first. So even for even for old hands uh, who have been with us for years, this is a new announcement. Um, we also have a new discussion forum that we are launching um, in connection with the Mythgard Academy classes. So if you would like to follow up um, some of the uh, the things that we talk about here in class um, in a sort of a you know a somewhat sort of lengthier uh, format than just sort of back and forth live in the chat room. Um, you have the opportunity to do that. If you go again, if you go to the Mythgard Academy page, um, there will be links there um, to the new forum. And again, for those of you who are here live, I can give you that link directly, and it is there. I just sent it to you in our uh, online interface, in our in our live interface there. Um, so I encourage you to go and check that out. You need to 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 sign up, of course, to, for a for a login. We need to protect it to make sure that. Um, none of the uh, none of the armies of disgruntled robots who are attacking us, and I and unprovokedly, I would add, I did nothing. I promise to those particular robots. Um, but anyhow, um, I, we we want to keep them from succeeding in their continual attempt to take down our website. So, uh, I, but I encourage you to go to the forum and and uh, and check that out. You'll also notice that I keep saying. For those of us, for those of you who are here live, as if I were also addressing somebody else, when in fact you guys are the ones who are here, uh, that's of course because we do record, we have audio and video recordings of all of our class sessions, which we make available in three ways after the fact. One is through links that are right there on the Academy page. If you go to the Book of Lost Tales webs, web page there, uh, under Mythgard Academy on our site, you will be able to find the links. Uh, very soon uh, to the recordings from this class. The second place is through our mid our our Mythgard Academy podcast feed. We have an RSS feed uh, for all of our class materials, video and audio. You can find that on iTunes, or you can get the, a direct link to our RSS feed again on that same web page. Or a third way, uh, if you uh, prefer that interface, is through iTunes U. Um, you can look at the Signum University iTunes U site, and you can find actually all of our Mythgard Academy classes available uh, uh, there as well. So there are several different ways in which you can get recordings. Um, all of these recordings are things that you can you can download them and play them in devices and whatever, or stream them live uh, on your computer. So um, I. Uh, 
I you know encourage you if you if you uh, miss parts or uh, Yana if you fall asleep, uh, which would be understandable because it's what three forty five over there, Yana. Uh, Yana, one of our dedicated Europeans, showing up uh, before cock crow here to to join us for the Book of Lost Tales class. Um, uh, so anyway, if you happen to nod off and miss some, Yana, you know where to find it. So, uh, so there we go. All right. Um, well, uh, that is, um, <laughs> Andrew points out it's a good time for Australians. What time is it for you down there right now, uh, uh, Andrew? Let's see. Is it, uh, it depends on which part of Australia you're in. Um, let's see. You're probably, what, noonish? Yeah, 11.30. Yeah, okay. Yep, yep, 11.46 for you guys. Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. Um, yeah, well, there you go. Um, you just uh, had to take a lunch break uh, with the Mythgard Academy here. Uh, very good. Excellent. Um, okay. Okay, good. Yeah, 1 o'clock in New Zealand for Chris. Very good. In Wellington. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Well, so, see, this is, you know, we try to please some people, though not everyone. I always do feel bad uh, for the Europeans. I schedule these classes when I do, chiefly because... Uh, that's this is the time when I can be most certain to be able to meet my classes uh, uninterrupted by my children uh, and the activities to which I am always driving my children. Um, but uh, but anyway, so I know it's uh, inconvenient for some, but works fine for others, so that's good. Okay, well, let's start talking about the Book of Lost Tales. So first, let's sort of talk a little bit about what is this thing that we're reading. Um, it's why I wanted to do the foreword, um, even though, you know, the, the foreword may seem kind of dry. A couple of you remembered, um, uh, sort of mentioned in emails, my comments before um, about introductions. I can't remember in what context I made. Was it in Riddles in the Dark? I can't remember where, which, what broadcast it was a part of that I was talking about introductions and how in general I don't read introductions. Um, I almost always skip them. And that, uh, uh, I think I, I was talking about it in the context of saying that I, uh, was sort of delighted to find that Tolkien himself was recommending exactly the same practice. Um, but I don't, that does not count forwards. Uh, forwards, that is, things that the authors write to append to the beginning of their books, um, are things that I do read. What I don't read are introductions written by other people. Um, those are the things that I that I get annoyed by. Sometimes I'll go back and read them after I finish the book, but I never read them first. Uh, I never see any point in it. Why should I sit down and read, you know, 20 to 100 pages of analysis of the book I haven't read yet? Um, so I, I, I always skip the introductions, scholarly introductions of, of that kind. But forewords by the author like this are very interesting, and especially in this case, Christopher Tolkien gives some really important context to the Book of Lost Tales. Um, now, one of the things that we need to do is, uh, in order to understand this, the significance of this book, the nature and the status of this book, um, is to kind of imaginatively put ourselves um, back. And that, uh, back to the time when this was published in the early 80s. This is, this is in, you know, within a few years after the Silmarillion came out. You may remember at the beginning of the Unfinished Tales class, we were talking about that Unfinished Tales was published soon after the Silmarillion. Um, that was the first, 
Unfinished Tales was sort of the first gesture um, by Christopher Tolkien. Well, I guess the Silmarillion, you can say. Um, After Tolkien's death, the first thing Christopher Tolkien did was produce the Silmarillion and publish that, because he knew that that was one of the things that had been really a lifelong dream of his father's, was to have the Silmarillion published and available. Um, And after that he then began to start making some of these other things available, too. In Unfinished Tales, there were many... Uh, was A lot of it was, as we discussed at the time, a kind of follow-up um, to the Lord of the Rings stuff. Um, not only were there... There were some things in there that were written right during the time of the Lord of the Rings and right afterwards. Most of those were written in that time period. Some things which bore directly on material from the Lord of the Rings. But, again, that was, that was supplementary... Th- the the material in unfinished tales was supplementary material specifically designed for for sort of readers of the lord of the rings what he describes about the um the book of lost tales um and this whole undertaking of the history of middle earth is essentially in response not just to critics of the Silmarillion, not in the sense of there are people who thought the Silmarillion wasn't much good and he wanted to, you know, prove them wrong or something like that, but rather because he found that there was widespread misunderstanding about what the Silmarillion was. And there were there are two things that he points to which seem to loom particularly large for him. Two objections that he seems most eager um, to contradict. Uh, the biggest one is the question of who wrote the Silmarillion. You know, he quotes the critic who basically concludes that obviously most of it must have been written by Christopher, that it's not really Tolkien's work at all. Most of it is is the product of the son and not the father, and there's a lot of question as to where the lines are drawn there. That seems to be the number one thing um, in my reading of the foreword, that Christopher Tolkien is eager to explain, is eager to demonstrate, that he wants to show people you know, basically, he can't just do, like, an annotated version of the Silmarillion, because it's too complicated. The whole picture of the growth of the Silmarillion material is way too convoluted. What he had to do to it, what Tolkien was working on in his later years, and what Christopher Tolkien completed um, in the years after Tolkien's death, was this gathering of all this stuff, the reconciling of of, of various contradictory elements within it, um, sort of going through and smoothing it out and making it, making it into something like, though still not exactly like, one single consistent narrative. Um, so again, it wasn't just like he could say, well, I kind of wrote that chapter, but, you know, Dad wrote most of the rest of them. It was far more complicated than that. So instead, what he does with... I think, very admirable thoroughness, certainly thoroughness for which I am very grateful, he said, you know what, the best way to show everybody what really was going on here, what the Silmarillion project was about, is to show people the whole process, to show them the entire steps, to show how these myths and stories and ideas grew in my father's mind so that then they'll be able to to understand when they get to the end and then compare with the published Silmarillion, they'll be able to see um, what the, the kind of work that he did 
uh, to bring these things together. So that, I think, again, is his primary concern, to demonstrate, essentially, no, the Silmarillion is not primarily my writings. Inspi- it's not Christopher Tolkien fan fiction, you know, something that he's writing inspired by what his father did, him piggybacking on J.R.R. Tolkien's work, but rather him really bringing forward what Tolkien, in a sense, really considered his life masterpiece, which was the Silmarillion uh, myths. Now, um, the second... And so that, I think, as I said, is the biggest thing. The biggest confusion that he wants to clear up, or misunderstanding. The second biggest one is this question of whether it's an early or a late work. April, you were just asking about this before. Um, That is to say, people aren't sure what to do with the Silmarillion. Is it something that he wrote early in his life? Or is it something that he wrote late in his life? That's what the debate is. And again, it comes out in 77, right? Um... And anyone who reads The Lord of the Rings attentively and read, and reads The Silmarillion will immediately recognize things, right? Like, for instance, we get that we get not only references to the story of Baron and Luthien, we get two versions of the story of Baron and Luthien, right? We get the, 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 the bit of poetry, the long bit of poetry uh, from Aragorn, and we also get Aragorn's prose synopsis of the Baron and Luthien story, in addition to further references to it later on. So, when we get the Silmarillion, and bam, look, it's the entire Baron and Luthien story. You know, we see, okay, now, but, but, but this doesn't answer the question, right? The question is, which came first? Right? Um, is this stuff written? That is, the Silmarillion stuff? Was this written... Uh, later? Was it written after uh, The Lord of the Rings? Was this something that Tolkien was working on in his later life and didn't finish, and is now being published? Or did it, in fact, come sooner? Um, and, again, there was, there was uncertainty. It was, it was unclear. What we need to do, in or- again, in order to put ourselves into the, into the, the sort of appropriate mindset for the foreword of the, of the Book of Lost Tales, we need to place ourselves um, as that the kind of attentive reader I was describing, those attentive readers of The Lord of the Rings after the Silmarillion came out, but not knowing any of the rest of this. Um, and I know for s- some of you may remember this. Uh, I don't. I missed that uh, experience. I was still way too young for the Silmarillion. Heck, I was too young for the Silmarillion ten years after it came out, uh, as it proved. However, um, uh you know, so there, there, there. I'm sure that there will be people in our audience who uh, who actually were in this situation, of not really knowing what to make of the Silmarillion, what to do with it. Um, and Christopher Tolkien does this, writes this, in essence, uh, in a sense, to sort of assist us with the Silmarillion, to assist us in contextualizing the Silmarillion, in in another way, to assist us in appreciating the Silmarillion and what it is. Um, so, anyhow, I just wanted to, to sort of point that out um, at first. Um, yeah, uh, Brent is asking, he says that it seemed to him, reading it as if uh, Christopher felt forced into writing it, um, that it, it seemed almost against his will or better judgment. I'm not quite sure of that, Brent. If anything... Um, if, if anything, and, and I might be completely fabricating this, I don't know that he was thinking or feeling anything of the kind, um, but I know the the way, parts of the forward sound to me as if what he's saying is, you wanted it, you'll get it, my friends. You're, I'm going to give you more answer to this question than you dreamt of. Um, 
You wanted to know whether this was something that was just fabricated after the fact? You think I just made this up? Right? You think that I'm just, I'm just, you know, uh, that, that this is my own little fairy tale inspired by... I'll, fine. <laughs> I'll show you. Right? I got 12 volumes for you, my friend, uh, if that's what you think. Um, it seems to me even more like that. I don't think that he's reluctant to do it necessarily. Um, another way to th- another another passage, Brent, that I think of is um, the part of the forward. Remember where he admits that he now, that is at the time of the publication of this, believes that he was wrong in one very important editorial decision that he made in the Silmarillion, and that was to present it without frame. Um, it seemed to him very clear, and it seems to me very clear, too, that um, Tolkien's intention was that the Silmarillion would be the translations from the Elvish by B.B., right? When Bilbo gives to Frodo the the three volumes of translations from the Elvish that get included in the West Book, in the Red Book of Westmarch, um, that that was was the fictional... um, origin of the Silmarillion legends. Um, and this seems really very clear, that that was how Tolkien was thinking of this. It seems almost inescapable when we know that Bilbo... Or Bilbo. A little accidental slip of the tongue there. That Tolkien uh, was trying to get... At the time when the Lord of the Rings was published, he was trying to get, as Christopher alludes to in the foreword, the Silmarillion published along with the Lord of the Rings, as like a quadrilogy or something, you know, four volumes, um, one of which would be the Silmarillion. Um, and so, of course, we see that, like, that fantasy comes true in the Red Book, right? The Red Book contains both the, both the translations from the Elvish and the story, which is, uh, which is the Lord of the Rings. Um, so, Christopher admits, he, you know, he explains that, you know, his father had never actually confirmed that. I never explicitly said, yeah, that's the Silmarillion. And so Christopher, being very scrupulous, as Christopher does tend to be very careful and very scrupulous in his editorial uh, choices, um, he very scrupulously did not make any reference to that. He didn't provide any of that sort of Hobbit textual context uh, of the Silmarillion. He didn't give that Third Age frame to the Silmarillion stories. And that, looking back on it now, as he says in the foreword, in retrospect, he believes that that was a mistake. Um, and, um, um, I, so, so again, Brent, I, I think about that passage, and in some sense, I, this seems to be, if anything, a kind of atonement for that mistake, that he feels that part of the reason people struggle with the Silmarillion is that, um, is is as a consequence of that what he believed in retrospect to be a poor editorial choice on his part. So, needing context for the Silmarillion, we're going to get context for the Silmarillion. Um, but I, I, it's not. I don't want to make too much of atonement. That makes it sound a little more grandiose than I think it is. But um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Nancy uh, Fosberg is talking about uh, enjoying his description of the physical volumes and his complaints about uh, Tolkien's handwriting and things being on different pages and stuff and uh, the uh, fearsome jigsaw uh, that uh, uh, that April really likes the description of. 
Um, yeah, and uh, for those of you who have never seen uh, Tolkien's writing, he had this incredible range of handwriting um, that sometimes, when he was writing in his own notebooks really fast, when he was just jotting stuff down, his writing is almost perfectly illegible. I mean, it's just like a little wiggly line. And uh, But he also, of course, could write just the most gorgeous calligraphy. Um, so uh, it's 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 a challenge. It's a huge challenge trying to interpret Tolkien's private papers. Um, and he he tended to do things like um, he would when he was going back through and and proofreading something or editing something, um, he would strike things out and write it in on top. And Christopher Tolkien's got to figure out, okay, wait, did he write those notes and make those changes? when he came back to it along like 10 years later or 20 years later, or was that part of the original conception? Cause you know, here he's trying to present for us the book of lost tales, you know, pretty much as it was back in the teens. Um, you know, not his later thinking on this from, you know, 20 and 30 and 50 years later. Uh, so he's got to sort those things out. Um, he also tended to do like, he would write something in pencil and then he would write over it in pen and erase the pencil, or partially erase the pencil, so you can almost see what he had originally said, but then not... Anyway, it's really, really hard. Um, just the just the actual sort of physical interpretation of what he... You know, reading of what he wrote. Um, it, is a, it is a really huge challenge. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Mike asks, uh, did uh, Tolkien write a Bilbo frame story similar to the Ariel in the cottage of, uh, in the cottage frame in Lost Tales? No, he didn't. Um, how could Christopher Tolkien have done it differently? Um, I, what he could have done, I think, is write a little introduction to sort of explain. Remember, in the beginning of the Lord of the Rings, that uh, note on the Shire Records section of the introduction, where it talks about the history of the Red Book of Westmarch, and Christopher could have written something like that, I think, to sort of explain, um, you know, these papers that you are going to read, you know, were originally gathered by Bilbo and Rivendell. Um, again, not to be essentially composing fiction, that is, to, to, to write a narrative of, of you know, Bilbo doing this or something like that. Again, nothing, nothing like the aerial frame of the, of, the, of the Lost Tales that we're getting here. Um, but some kind of editorial introduction along those lines of the notes on the Shire records. That, I think, could have been done, and it would have helped people a lot. Um, he is correct, or rather, Christopher Tolkien... I firmly agree with what Tom Shippey says that Christopher Tolkien quotes in this foreword um, in saying that one of the biggest things that puts people off of the Silmarillion, and I remember for a fact myself being put off from the Silmarillion for many years by it, is the disappointment upon reading the Silmarillion not to find something like the, the Lord of the Rings. The problem was less in the text, or less in my ability to comprehend the text, than in my expe the expectations that I brought to the text. And I, I also remember the reaction that I was, the sort of bewilderment that I was experiencing when I did uh, try to read the Silmarillion the first time was, was primarily of the, what is this? What am I reading? What is going on? It's, are we going to get to a story? You know, I, 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 the Ainu Indale was short and it was kind of interesting, but I was like, this is not the Lord of the Rings. 
what is this? Who are these people? What does this have to do with the Lord of the Rings? And then I get to the Valaquenta, and I'm like, uh, okay. Um, and I seemed I was even further out to sea. I'm not even sure I got as far as the Quinta Silmarillion. I think the Valaquenta did me in, not because it was so hard to understand, but because. I was I was wanting a story. I was ready for I was ready for like more Lord of the Rings, another a sequel or something. I don't know exactly what I expected, but something like that. Um, and uh, um, had I even just gotten that kind of a context, if I had had it explained to me, you remember? Because I would have remembered um, those translations from the Elvish that Bilbo gave to to Frodo. Here they are, right. You, what you are about to read are the ancient legends of the first stage. Remember that you know all these other references. You know a, an introduction that would have gone through and reminded me of the references to the Silmarillion uh, content in the Lord of the Rings, uh, and then tell me like you're now about to read the true story behind those things. I would have been pumped for that. I, I, I am positive I would have been pumped to read that had I been given that introduction. So I do think that it would have um, it would have it would have probably helped me and many other people. So. So, um, again, uh, there are, um, there are definitely, this is one of the things that he's clearly seeking to, uh, to kind of correct and explain and now contextualize better what the Silmarillion is, uh, and how, in a sense, we can approach it. Though he does seem, I might be mis- misreading him, but Christopher does sound a little bit snarky uh, in his discussion of the approach, which he always puts in quotation marks, to the Silmarillion. Um, but, but nevertheless, he does seem to be uh, intending this, in a sense, to help. But what I want to focus on here as we think about the Book of Lost Tales is um, I want to not necessarily just be thinking about the Book of Lost Tales in the context of the Silmarillion. That's inescapable. We're going to be talking about the Silmarillion and be doing some comparison and contrast. But I do want to do a little bit more than that. Um, There's a first passage I wanted to talk about when Christopher talks about the Silmarillion material, which he puts in quotation marks, and the Silmarillion, the published volume. Um... He says the author's vision of his own the author's vision of his own vision underwent a continual slow shifting, shedding, and enlarging. Only in the in the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings did parts of it emerge to be fixed in print in his own lifetime. The study of Middle Earth and Valinor is thus complex, for the object of the study was not stable, but exists, as it were, longitudinally in time, the author's lifetime, and not only transversely in time as a printed book that undergoes no essential further change. By the publication of the Silmarillion, the longitudinal was cut transversely, and a kind of finality imposed. So again, here, in context, he's talking about how the publication of the Silmarillion imposes a kind of... And here, I'm adding what I think he's pointing to here, a kind of artificial sense of finality. That is to say, this is, you know, the Silmarillion, by, 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 by publishing, you know, this book, he said, this is Tolkien's vision of, you know, Valinor and the First Age, which is kind of true, maybe, but what he's pointing to here is to say, really, if you want to understand um, Tolkien's vision for Valinor and Middle-earth and all of these things, 
you need to see how it worked out over his lifetime. You need to study it longitudinally, as well as transversely, as well as cutting across it. Um, and in this class, what I want to uh, what I want to emphasize is I want to spend. I hope to spend the majority, not all by any stretch, but the majority of our time looking at the sort of transverse, you know, cross-section of Tolkien's, of the development of Tolkien's thought that is the Book of Lost Tales. That is to say, I want to spend a good deal of our time just talking about these stories as they are. And I want to try to restrain ourselves from always just comparing and contrasting, right? Um, from always thinking of, you know, for instance, there's going to be a temptation, I think. For those of you who have never read this before, there will be a temptation, especially if you love the Silmarillion, to be doing continual comparisons which are likely going to be unflattering to the Book of Lost Tales. Again, especially if you already love the Silmarillion. Um, it's, my, it might be, it's, it's, it's going to be tempting um, to be constantly saying, well, that's not like it is in the Silmarillion, and mm, that's, that's, you know, and oh, that's really strange compared to the Silmarillion. We're going to do comparisons. Um, and in fact, as you will have noticed, if you look through the webpage that I created for the class, I have sort of assigned or recommended chapters from the Silmarillion to review um, because we might as well have those stories from the Silmarillion fresh in our minds, from the published Silmarillion fresh in our minds as we read those sections in the Book of Lost Tales because those comparisons are going to come up and we might as well have that fresh in our minds. But that's not going to be the exclusive focus of what we're going to be doing. I want to try to understand these stories as stories on their own because, of course, um, there's a second sort of imaginative exercise that we need to perform, not just for the sake of the forward, putting ourselves back to the late 70s and early 80s um, when we still didn't know any of this, any of the history of the Silmarillion, but to put ourselves much further back in our imaginations, back uh, to back before 1920, when Tolkien was still in, you know, when World War One was still going on, and. This was Tolkien's attempt to bring his stories together into a consistent whole for the first time. Um, there was, of course, no extended history of the Silmarillion when this stuff was written. This is it. And I want to understand, I want to try together to understand what it is, that this is, right? Um, so I do want, we're going to be comparing, but I want to be focusing on this. We're going to be looking longitudinally, but... I want to be focusing on this one particular transverse slice, um, which I think is which I think is really crucial. Um, um, Because I think we will, if we're not continually, if we if we don't, if we can shake ourselves free from this as a frame of reference. That is, if we operate imaginatively in the world which is familiar to many of us, the Silmarillion, the published Silmarillion world. If we're still sort of living in this world, this one is going to seem very alien. It may seem alien anyway, um, but there are parts of it that are going to seem that are going to seem alien, or perhaps the greater danger is that they won't seem quite alien enough. That when we read about Manway, we'll only be thinking about this Manway, and not this Manway, and they're not the same. Um, there are significant differences, as we'll see, between Manway, as he's depicted in the Book of Lost Tales, and Manway, as we know him from the Silmarillion. Um, 
there are, you know, so I want to try to invest ourselves imaginatively in the world of the Lost Tales to try to understand it. And I think that Christopher gives us a kind of um, a, a, a kind of incentive um, to do that, I think, in the foreword when he says, but beyond the difficulties and the obscurities, what is certain and very evident is that for the begetter of Middle-earth and Valinor, there was a deep coherence and vital interrelation between all its times, places, and beings, whatever the literary modes and however protean some parts of the conception might seem when viewed over a long lifetime. That is, no matter how different these things are, no matter how much some of this stuff is going to change and how long the process of change may be between what he put down in the Book of Lost Tales and what we finally get in the published Silmarillion, Christopher asserts that there is a deep coherence and vital interrelation between all the times, places, and beings of this story of Middle-earth and Valinor, that there is an essential story here. There is an essential myth that underlies this, that that was, in Tolkien's own mind, consistent through all of the versions and in, what, and in whatever the literary modes. He's referring to that because, of course, he wrote, he wrote these stories in prose, he wrote these stories in verse, um, he wrote some of these stories in English, he wrote some stuff in Elvish, he wrote some stuff in Anglo-Saxon, um, whatever literary mode he was operating in, and at whatever time, and no matter what the changes, the, the, the story and its characters are undergoing, there is sort of an essential thing. Um, and, you know, in this class... This class by itself is certainly not going to be enough to try to, you know, really put our finger on exactly what is that thing. But this is, as I say, it's a kind of incentive, or even a bit of a challenge. As we read through, and I hope that, um, you know, however uh, however soon or however thoroughly uh, we return to uh, the History of Middle-Earth series in the Mythgard Academy classes... Um, I say if because, of course, in case you don't know, it's not up to me. Um, this is a democracy. Uh, those who have uh, supported the Mythgard Academy through our fundraising campaign of last year, and we'll be doing another fundraising campaign soon, um, the people who support the Mythgard Academy uh, get the power to nominate and elect uh, the books. I don't uh, even vote. Um, so this uh, is sort of a surprise to me. Um, but anyway, should our electors choose to continue this project uh, and at any point. Um, you know, it's it's going to be a while, but in any case, um, this is something to keep your eye out for. This is something, I think, um, that makes the Silmarillion story, that is the story, the sort of meta-story of the Silmarillion so compelling when we read um, and sort of see Tolkien's occupation with these ideas and concepts all the way through his lifetime. Um, it's really fascinating. Um... Okay, um, last couple things I want to mention. Well, okay, really last thing I want to mention before we move on. Okay, no, no, two things. There are two things I want to mention before we move on to actually talk about The Cottage of Last Play. Um, another passage on points of view. To read the Silmarillion, one must place oneself imaginatively, uh, Christopher Tolkien says, at the time of the ending of the Third Age, within Middle-earth, looking back, at the temporal at the temporal point of Sam Gamgee's I like that, adding, I should like to know more about it. 
Moreover, the compendious or epitomizing form and manner of the Silmarillion, with its suggestion of ages of poetry and lore behind it, strongly evokes a sense of untold tales, even in the telling of them. Distance is never lost. There's no narrative urgency, the pressure and fear of the immediate and unknown event. We do not actually see the Silmarils as we see the ring. The maker of the Silmarillion, as he, said, as he himself said of the author of Beowulf, was telling of things already old and weighted with regret, and he expended his art in making keen that touch upon the heart which sorrows have that are both poignant and remote. Christopher Tolkien is, of course, here quoting from Tolkien's own essay, Beowulf uh, and the, uh, you know, the, 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 the Monsters and the Critics, his great Beowulf essay. Um, Tolkien said that about the Beowulf author. Um, about the effect of, of Beowulf, and Christopher Tolkien suggests, as many others have also um, seen, that what Tolkien described, the, 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 the successes um, that Tolkien himself attributed to Beowulf are some of the things that are also very remarkable about Tolkien's own work. Um, this sort of sense of distance and untold tales. Now, in this story, when we go to the Book of Lost Tales, we have another imaginative leap, as I mentioned before, that we need to make. Um, I said we need to put ourselves not in 1979, 1980, but instead we need to put ourselves back to like 1917. Well, it's not just that leap that we have to make. We also need to imaginatively shift from this standpoint. When we look at the Silmarillion, as Christopher explains, um, the place to stand imaginatively to look at the Silmarillion is at the end of the Third Age, we're, as if we were reading this within the Red Book of Westmarch. That's the, the context of the Silmarillion. That is not, of course, the context of the Book of Lost Tales. The Book of Lost Tales, uh, of course, cannot be a Third Age book. Um, <clears throat> it is not possible for the Book of Lost Tales to have been something written by Bilbo or Frodo or Sam, because the whole concept of the Third Age is not there. We have to put ourselves imaginatively back into the, th the First Age, though still not at the beginning. It is still, the Book of Lost Tales itself, through its frame narrative, is still not, um, still does not have the kind of narrative urgency, that pressure and fear of the immediate and unknown event that Christopher Tolkien describes here. We are not, um, just as in the Silmarillion, we do not follow the narrative along as closely as we follow Frodo on his journey to Mordor, um, so in the Book of Lost Tales, we have greater distance. The frame narrative establishes that distance, right? We are overhearing tales of old times being told to somebody, right? So we are invited, the frame of the Book of Lost Tales invites us to stand essentially shoulder to shoulder with Ariel, right? Um, which, as we will see, sort of, as Christopher explains, it gets real complicated very quickly. Um, we will, um, we are at near the end, but not quite at the end of what will later be called the First Age. Um, but it's um, it's not just the end of the First Age. You know, it's, 
it's not like we can put ourselves at the end of the first stage that we're familiar with in the Silmarillion, as if, you know, we're just like at that place, but the second and third age haven't happened yet. The second and third age of Middle-earth, as they come later to be conceived in Tolkien's mind, can't happen. Uh, in the Book of Lost Tales world. You'll notice, um, through several references we have already gotten in chapter one, the dominion of men is already coming. We're almost there. The time of the, the elder kindred is almost past, and that's one of the things that the stories are already focusing on. Um, so the span of history and the sort of process of decline that we get in the second and third ages of Middle-earth um, is, is nowhere on the radar screen. So that means, again, we have to shake ourselves free of the imaginative framework given to us by the Lord of the Rings and the subsequently published Silmarillion and try to understand what is the overall imaginative and historical framework of the Lost Tales world. Um, so in a sense, the frame and the tales are less remote. This is not us sitting in Rivendell or in Bag End with Bilbo or with Frodo or with Sam and his many, many offspring, um, looking way back thousands and thousands and thousands of years into the past, um, at the first age or at the, you know, the Ainuindale that we're getting in the Silmarillion. In that sense, the tales in the Book of Lost Tales are more immediate because the people who are telling them uh, you know, Lindo and Vaire are connected with the people who were engaged in them. It's much more recent history in that sense. It's much less remote in time than the that frame of the Silmarillion is from uh, the actual content of the Silmarillion stories. Um, but um, that doesn't mean, as Christopher explains in some of his foreword, that doesn't mean that there's no remoteness, that it loses, that, it, you know, that, that the Book of Lost Tales has less of that, um, you know, that, that, that perception of depth that um, the Silmarillion has and that the Lord of the Rings uh, so famously had. Um, I give one passage as a kind of illustration um, from... Uh, from uh, of of what I'm talking about. Here's uh, Vaire in the Cottage of Lost Play. That is the voice of Tombo, the gong of the children, which stands outside the hall of play regained, and it rings once to summon them to this hall at the times for eating and drinking, and three times to summon them to the room of the log fire for the telling of tales. And added Lindo. If at his ringing once there be laughter in the corridors and a sound of feet, then do the walls shake with mirth and stamping at the three strokes in an evening. And the sounding of the three strokes is the happiest moment in the day of Little Heart the Gong Warden, as he himself declares, who has known happiness enough of old. And ancient indeed is he beyond count, in spite of his merriness of soul. He sailed in Wingalot with Arendel in that last voyage wherein they sought for core. It was the ringing of this gong on the shadowy seas that awoke the sleeper in the Tower of Pearl that stands far out to the west in the Twilight Isles. To these words did Ariel's mind so lean, for it seemed to him that a new world and very fair was opening to him, and he heard naught else till he was bidden by Vaire to be seated. Um, we, despite the fact that the 
content of the tales that we get in the Book of Lost Tales is less distant in time and in place from the frame, from Ariel, from where we as readers are being positioned by the frame of this story, um, I think we still get a an enormous sense of that same kind of depth. When Christopher Tolkien says, it's just not true that if you go keep going backwards and telling the older stories, that you're going to run out of depth or that the thing is going to suddenly start seeming shallow. Um, those untold tales that he refers to, I, just that paragraph, um, I find... You know, I, I said that as readers were positioned sort of shoulder to shoulder with Ariel here, um, and this is one of the places where I feel most closely attuned to Ariel for that um, reaction that he has um, of his mind leaning to these words, for it seemed to him that a new world and very fair was opening to him, is exactly the experience I have when I read that paragraph, especially when I read it for the first time. Um, you think of all of the the weight of story that underlies those sentences, right? And you think of all of the stories, um, and again, remember the context of this paragraph is explaining about the log fire for the telling of tales, right? And how happy everybody is when it's storytelling time uh, in the Cottage of Lost Play. But you just sort sort of go through there and list out the terms, the names, the references, which have, which obviously have long and important stories behind them. Um, and it becomes a long list really quickly. Hall of Play regained? Regained in what sense? When was it lost? And what was the Hall of Play, anyway? Um, you know, Little Heart the Gong Warden, who is he? What happiness did he know of old? Uh, and is there a reason why, like, and how did he get to where he is now? Um, and uh, like he sailed in Wingalot with Arendel in that last voyage? How many stories underlie that Wingalot? What's special about Wingalot? Who is Arendel? Um, what is the last voyage? What were his other voyages? Um, they sought for Kor. What's that? And why did they seek for it? And then, you know, the shadowy seas, the sleeper in the Tower of Pearl. That phrase by itself, the sleeper in the Tower of Pearl. I mean, that's a story by itself, isn't it? Um, uh by the way, uh, Sleeper in the Tower of Pearl is one of my favorites. Um, I think of the the place where, um, in one of his critical essays, C.S. Lewis once referred to the uh, the William Morris story, The Well at the World's End, um, and was, was sort of talking about how incredibly evocative that title is, The Well at the World's End. Uh, and uh, Lewis says, you know, the story doesn't really live up to the title, but he's like, what story could live up to that title? Um, uh, and, and to me, that the, the, that that phrase, the, the sleeper in the Tower of Pearl, uh, I find uh, just sort of evocative in a very similar way. I almost don't want to know anymore about the sleeper in the Tower of Pearl uh, as the actual story, it seems, would almost have to be uh, uh, less rich than the mere suggestiveness of the phrase. Um, uh, anyway, so th- I, I think that we can see how even in his very early writings, even at, you know, at the beginning of the Book of Lost Tales here, um, we are already seeing the way in which Tolkien is investing these stories with that sense of, with that 
sense of depth with that weight of untold stories. Um, no matter how many stories we tell, no matter how many times we go to the room of the log fire or how long we stay there, we are certainly never going to be able to hear all these stories and we can understand why the children who live there and have apparently lived there for a very long time are so happy when it's time for another story. Um, now, let's, uh, let's move on to the Cottage of Lost Play itself. Um, one thing that might have stricken you when you were reading this, um, especially if you know Tolkien's later work, and, and especially, especially if you know um, his great essay on fairy stories, is there might have been some things that kind of surprised you. Some approaches that Tolkien takes to elves, in particular, in this story, which are very different from how he treats elves later on, and which, in fact, even seem contradictory to the things that he said were so important about elves and fairies in his essay on fairy stories. Um, this is not only the comparatively superficial fact that he still refers to the elves as fairies. Um, attentive readers, of course, will recall that he still does that in the published Hobbit. Um, you know, in 1937, he was still referring to elves as fairies, not constantly, but still occasionally. The two words were interchangeable and used as synonyms. But that drops away by the time we get to the Lord of the Rings. We never see um, the elves referred to as fairy. We, we, we never see that kind of synonymous substitution um, of those two words anymore. Um, and in the Book of Lost Tales, we're seeing fairies all over the place, right? So that's one sort of obvious linguistic difference. But again, there's more. There are a couple things you may remember if you've read his On Fairy Stories essay. There are a couple popular mis you know sort of popular late 19th early 20th century misconceptions or misunderstandings about fairies and fairy stories that Tolkien is very keen to clear up and to distance himself from um and one of those things is the concept that fairies are diminutive that when you define fairies fairies are a little people you know a you know they're tinkerbell right you know tiny little winged pixies, um, um, you know, that hide in bluebells and that kind of thing. And Tolkien is very emphatic in saying that is not how, that is how fairies have come to be, but that that tradition of fairies, that, that conception of fairies is something which has, which is essentially the consequence of the tradition degrading over time, that that is not how fairies originally were. And it's easy upon reading those that discussion in on fairy stories to then go to the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion and to see in those works a kind of attempt to correct that right to reclaim elves um, for the older you know in the spirit of the older tradition rather than in the uh, the sort of uh, shallower and more corrupt version of fairies that had come down through the Victorian era now. But now we open the Book of Lost Tales, and what do we find? The Cottage of Lost Play is eensy, right? And Vire and Lindo are little. In fact, one could even call them diminutive, right? Um, and you remember Christopher Tolkien is a little bit um, uncertain, right? That is to say, he, he addresses this, and it's 
pretty clear to me that he has the On Fairy Stories essay in mind, that he's exactly trying to head off this particular objection that people might have. Hey, wait a second. Why, why, why in Tolkien's early work are fairies tiny like this? Um, well, let's look at the passage in question here. So here's Ariel, of course, coming to the house. Now was he at the summit of the hill amidst its houses, and stepping as if by chance, he turned aside down a, wi- a winding lane, till, a little down the western slope of the hill, his eye was arrested by a tiny dwelling whose many small windows were curtained snugly, yet only so that a most warm and delicious light, as of heart's content within, looked forth. Then his heart yearned for kind company, and the desire for wayfaring died in him. Impelled by, and impelled by a great longing, he turned aside at this cottage door, and knocking, asked one who came and opened what might be the name of this house and who dwelt therein. And it was said to him that this was Marvanwa Tialieva, or the Cottage of Lost Play, and at that name he wondered greatly. There dwelt within, t'was said, Lindo and Vaire, who had built it many years ago, and with them were no few of their folk and friends and children. And at this he wondered more than before, seeing the size of the cottage. But he that opened to him, perceiving his mind, said, Small is the dwelling, but smaller still are they that dwell here, for all who enter must be very small indeed, or of their own good wish become as very little folk, even as they stand upon the threshold. Then said Ariel that he would dearly desire to come therein, and seek of Vire in Lindo a knight's guest-kindliness, if so they would, and if he might of his own good wish become small enough there upon the threshold. Then said the other, Enter, and Ariel stepped in, and behold, it seemed a house of great spaciousness, and very great delight, and the lord of it, Lindo, and his wife, Vire, came forth to greet him, and his heart was more glad within him than it had been yet in all his wanderings, albeit, since his landing in the lonely isle, his joy had been great enough. Okay, what do we see here? Um, well, this is clearly not a simple contradiction of what we saw, of what we read in On Fairy Stories, right? Again, in On Fairy Stories, he is, com- well, I almost said complaining. Well, yeah, he is kind of complaining. He's complaining about the modern conception, the modern assumption about fairies, their only concept of fairies being the tiny little Tinkerbell sprite variety, and saying, no, no, there's more to fairies than that. That is not, in fact, the mainstream fairy tradition. Um, and it's not... The case is certainly not that we turn to the, the Book of Lost Tales and we find him depicting fairies as being exactly that. Um, you know, there are these wee little folk that hide in flowers. That's not, in fact, what he's saying. Um, and we can see that that's manifestly not what he's saying, right? Because they are, in essence, of the same size as Ariel. He himself has to become small to enter their house. But as Christopher Tolkien points out, and I think very aptly, um, I I do think that there's a little bit of an atmosphere of um, Christopher Tolkien protesting a little too much when he's trying to... um, He seems... I don't know, I get kind of the impression that he's like, don't worry about the diminutive thing. Yes, they're small, but don't worry about it. And he seems to kind of want to shrug that off. I, I don't want to shrug it off quite as much as Christopher Tolkien seems to want to do in his commentary on that. Um, but nevertheless, I think he obviously makes a very good point. Ariel has been wandering about the Lonely Isle. Um, he has, 
we have every reason to think he has met other elves, and yet he's surprised to see this small house. It's not like he comes along and he's like, oh look, another wee elf house, just like the other wee elf houses I have seen on this wee elfin island, right? That's obviously not the reaction that he has. He's confused, and he's like, what's up with this house, and why is it so small? Um, Another thing, notice that when he comes to it, his first thought is, I would like to seek guest kindliness there. That is, I'd like to come in. So obviously we're not talking about a house this size, right? That he's going to go up and knock on the door and be like, hey, could I come in? Um, um, It's small, but it's not that small, right? So it's not quite as we... We're not talking about a Tinkerbell house here. Um, What surprises him is to learn that there's so many people that live there. Um... So again, when he when it says that it's a small house, I think it's it's perhaps not quite. Not, again, I don't think we're talking about like dollhouse size necessarily. But nevertheless, what we do see, and what I don't think we should ignore, is the fact that we do have this association between the cottage of lost play and diminutiveness, right? Um, an association which does seem, if not con- in contradiction to Tolkien's later. Um, uh, sort of teachings and insistence about the lack of correlation between fairies and diminutiveness um, is at least interesting in that context. What do we see going on here? What is the function of the smallness of um, of these um, uh, of these uh, of of these elves. Kate Neville makes an interesting comparison. Kate says uh, the section r- reminded me of the Weasley tent in Harry Potter, which is much bigger on the inside, but the overall effect is different, for it is devised for the delight of the children. Um, yes, yes, it's more like that. Um, that is the impression too that I get from the conversation that he has with the guy at the door, right? It's not again like how could I possibly enter into this t- teensy little house? That's not what he says. Instead, he's surprised when he hears about all the people who live there. How can all these people live there? Just as Harry Potter is confused when Mister Weasley um, puts up their tent and it looks like a tiny little two-man pop tent, um, and in fact, of course, the whole family can stay there comfortably, and there's like separate wings in it on the inside because it's bigger on the inside than the outside. Um, uh, uh, yes, uh, several of you, uh, Yana and Ian and uh, Andrew, are all comparing it to the TARDIS. Um, I, I, I will accept that. I have to confess to you um, that I am not a Hoovian myself. It is not that I am anti-Hoovian, uh, but um, I'm, I, I, I am not an anti-Hoovian. But um, I have not watched Doctor Who, um, and the only uh, excuse that I would plead for this is that. I do want to watch Doctor Who someday, and I am kind of saving myself. I want to do it properly. Uh, And of course, if you know me, what doing it properly means is starting as close to the beginning as I can and going through in order. And I haven't had time to do that yet. But sometime, I'm going to go on a very long vacation uh, with uh, uh, dozens or even hundreds of hours of Doctor Who, and I am going to watch it someday. Um... But uh, anyway, so sorry, that's just my, my little apology for not being able uh, to, uh, to fully appreciate, or certainly myself, to make Doctor Who references. Um, anyway, um, Jonathan says it sounds also like Alice entering Wonderland. Yes, I do think that there is, uh, there is certainly an element there. Um, but um, 
<laughs> Both Neil and Andrew said it's only 50 years worth of stuff. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, as I said, you know, sometimes I'll take a long weekend, you know, and uh, work my way through it. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I know I can't. I know you, I know you can't watch the first seasons. I I totally I totally understand that. Yana's asking for now for a Doctor Who Academy class. You know what? If you elect it, I'll do it. I'll watch them and we can talk about them. I'm to, I'm game. I'm game. Richard at the same time suggested the same thing. So there you go. See, start a movement. Start a movement. I'll do it. I'm game. I I, I hey, why not? I'd be happy. That would that that would be a good incentive for me to watch it. But anyway, let me not get distracted. Um, one of the the effects of this here, um, and you'll notice, smallness or diminutiveness is not a feature anywhere through the rest of the story. That is, when Ariel shrinks down to be small, because you have to become small uh, in order to enter into the household. As you stand upon the threshold, you become small. It's not like he's now in the little small world, right? That, like, for the rest of the frame story, we're seeing, like, enormous bumblebees flying by because he's really little. Again, th- th- there's not that sense of proportion. What changes? In what sense is this house and the people who are in it small? Small is the dwelling, but smaller still are they that dwell here for all who enter must be very small indeed, or of their own good wish, become as very little folk, even as they stand upon the threshold. Um, this seems to me less a sta- uh, to be less interested in size than to be interested in attitude, maybe even in moral stature. This seems to me a, a moral question more than anything else. That is, it reflects a kind of willingness, even a kind of humility, in order to enter the house. Um, you have to... The, the people there are small, and you have to be willing to become small in order to be there. You have to enter into the spirit of the home. Kate was just saying modesty or humility. That's exactly the kind of thing. Um, uh, Richard says, I also remember someone saying something once about entering in as a child. Yeah, I also can't help but think of that, too. Um... Uh, that is uh, only uh, uh, that uh, those who enter the kingdom of heaven will become, you know, will have to become first as a little child in order to enter it. Um, that, of course, being a quote from Jesus in the gospel, um, that is exactly the kind of spirit in which I take that reference to becoming small. Um, yeah, Don says, you know, it's an ego thing, perhaps. That's exactly um, what I think we will see that the house itself is very strongly associated with children. And indeed, these glimpses of fairy are very firmly attached with children and with childhood. Um, And that's what we're going to segue to next, because of course, hang on a second, that's another thing that Tolkien contradicted in his On Fairy Stories essay, isn't it? You know, he said that fairies are not diminutive, and then he says there is no essential connection between fairies and children. The only reason that we in the modern world believe that fairy tales are peculiarly appropriate for children is that we don't want them for ourselves. You know, he compared them to, like, the out-of-fashion old furniture that gets put in nurseries, not because that first 
furniture is particularly well suited to children, but because it's out of fashion and the adults don't care about it anymore, so they don't care if it gets knocked to pieces in the nursery, and that's why they've put it there. And fairy tales, too, because adults have ceased to care about them, they um, they will allow children to read them, um, but then urge you to ignore them after that. Um, so... So again, but he says it's not about ch- there's there's no essential connection between child between children and fairy. That seems l- more than the diminutiveness thing. That concept seems more emphatically contradicted in his early conception. Or rather, again, to put it the other way around, when he wrote that later on in on fairy stories, um, he. Uh, he seems to be thinking a little bit differently than it appears he was thinking um, back in, you know, 20 years before. Let's, uh, um, let's look at that. When Vire begins the story about the house to explain about the Cottage of Lost Play and what it is and where it came from, then said Vire, Know then that aforetime, in the days of Inwe, and farther back it is hard to go in the history of the Eldar, there was a place of fair gardens in Valinor, beside a silver sea. Now this place was near the confines of the realm, but not far from Kor, yet by reason of its distance from the sun-tree, Lindelos, there was a light there, as of summer evening, save only when the silver lamps were kindled on the hill at dusk, and then little white, little lights of white would dance and quiver on the paths, chasing black shadow dapples under the trees. So this location that she's describing is in Valinor beside a silver sea. Okay, so this is a place in Valinor, in Fairy, not far from Kor. Kor being the city of the elves in Valinor, not the city of the elves on the lonely island where where Ariel is currently sitting and talking to Lindo and Vide. There is a city named Kor there, but it is not the same city. It is built and named after the city in Valinor, because we wouldn't want that to be confusing. So, um, this is the original Valinorian city of Kor. That is the the original, in a sense, home city of the elves in Fairy, um, in Valinor. Near there is where we have this um, this location that she is describing. This was a time of joy to the children, for it was mostly at this hour that a new comrade would come down the lane called Olore Male, or the Path of Dreams. It has been said to me, though the truth I know not, that that lane ran by devious routes to the homes of men, but that way we never trod when we fared thither ourselves. It was a lane of deep banks and great overhanging hedges, beyond which stood many tall trees, wherein a perpetual whisper seemed to live, but not seldom great glow-worms crept about its grassy borders. Another one of those fantastic untold tales moments, isn't it? Um, what is this wood? What is the wood that borders the path of dreams? What are the trees? What are the tall trees in that wood whispering about? And, you know, what is that perpetual whisper that lives among those trees? And what are what's up with these glowworms? Uh, where do they come from and what are they? Um, we don't know um, and we won't know. Um, 
we will never learn, in fact, these stories. These will remain untold stories. Um, Abby asks, is Kor early Tyrion? Yes. The, um, it is the parallel to Tyrion upon Tuna um, that we see in the Silmarillion. So, yes, exactly. You're, you're, you're thinking in exactly the right direction there. It was originally called Kor. Now, um, notice what we get here, then. We have a place in Valinor, a place in Fairy, where mortals come, but only children come, and they come in their dreams. They come by the Olore Male, the path of dreams. Um, whether or not these children are actually there in the body, whether they're only there in the spirit and their bodies are back on the earth, what happens with their bodies, these things are never really explained here in this uh, in this passage. But again, even before we get to the Cottage of Lost Play and its children and the smallness associated with it and everything, um, we learn about this connection between the world of children and the world of fairy. Adults do not seem to come by the path of dreams um, to this place on the shores of the Silver Sea in Valinor. Um, okay, um, more. So what happens there? This was the cottage of the children, or of the play of sleep, and not of lost play, as has wrongly been said in song among men. Um, we'll come back to this scurrilous, this scandalous falsehood about the cottage of lost play that has been circulated in, uh, in song among men. We'll come back to that in a little bit. It's really a scandalous story. But, anyway, it's not the cottage of lost play. This is the cottage of the children, or the cottage of the play of sleep. For no play was lost then, and here, alas, only and now is the cottage of lost play. These two were the earliest children the children of the fathers of the fathers of men that came there. And for, the, and for pity, the Eldar sought to guide all who came down that lane into the cottage and the garden, lest they strayed into Kor, and became enamored of the glory of Valinor. For then they would either stay there forever, and great grief fall on their parents, or would they wander back and long forever vainly, and become strange and wild among the children of men. Okay, so already we now see one explanation of the link between fairy and children um, in the Book of Lost Tales. That is, Tolkien is working with a traditional fairy tale motif by, uh, by, ta by connecting fairies and children in this particular way. It is a long-standing tradition in fairy, in fairy tales, in fairy story literature, that fairies abduct children. Um, or swap children, right? We'll, we'll steal a human child and put a fairy child in its place, uh, called a changeling. Um, uh, this is a, again, this is a, this is a, this is a traditional idea. And notice what Tolkien is doing. He is selecting that connection between fairies and children from those, those traditional stories but he's shifting, and in fact, he's almost reversing it. We have the elves seeking to protect children, right? Um, the elves are worried about the parents of the children. They don't want to steal the children. They try to send. The, they, they try to make sure as much as they can that the children get back, so that their parents are not bereaved of their children. Um, some children vanish or die in their sleep, 
and are said to be taken by the fairies. Others become strange and wild um, and never seem to be right, never really seem to be living in the same world with the rest of human beings. The explanation given for this here is that they have um, they have returned to their bodies um, from where they ventured into Valinor through the through the the path of dreams, but they have been so smitten by what they saw there, so enamored of the glory of Valinor that even if they didn't stay there for uh, forever, they would wander back and long forever vainly. Their minds would be so fixed upon the fairy of which they got a, they got um, uh, uh, a glimpse that they would never be right again. Um, Yana points out that Tolkien also connected children with fairy and Smith of Wooten Major. I agree, and I, I don't want to get too distracted in that because we're not reading Smith of Wooten Major, and I know that not everybody um, you know, at the class necessarily will have read it, though of course if you haven't, you should. It's wonderful. Um, but, um, but I would just say quickly that I do think in Smith of Wooten Major we are seeing again Tolkien reiterating a theme which is similar to what he is saying here way back in The Cottage of Lost Play about that that stature thing, about becoming small and about ways in which children um, are more open to fairy, perhaps, than their elders are. Um, Anyway, um, I think that we do see that, because again, we have this in a sense, free interplay. Notice, again, the elves aren't going and abducting, uh, abducting the children and bringing them back. The children are coming on their own. There is a path that connects the dreams of children to fairy. Um, that path, we'll learn more about the making of that path later on in the Book of Lost Tales, but, um, um, but that path is not made by the elves. And they don't travel on it. The children of their own, I don't know if volition is the right word, because they don't seem to be able to control it volitionally, but um, the children themselves travel it and come here to Valinor. So again, what we see is a connection between children and elves, but that it is connected not to the sort of the penchant of elves, but the nature of children. Um, that children have this sort of means of... of, of um, access. Um, Abby asks, is, you know, is free will involved? You know, are the children allowed to not go? Um, are children drawn there against their will? I don't know, Abby. It doesn't say exactly that, but I kind of would think not, um, that they wouldn't be drawn against their will. I rather suspect, based on how he describes it, um, that the kind of child who would choose not to go to fairy, um, won't find his way there. Um, but I'm, um, I'm not, um, uh, he doesn't say that explicitly, so I can't really be sure. Um, um, okay, um, let me move on to, um, more than just starting to run out of time. Um, because we say, let me, let me continue on here, because we see not only the fact that children are drawn here, but then the impact that it has. Now, for the most part, 
The children, and I skipped a little bit there, of course. Now, for the most part, the children did not often go into the house, but danced and played in the garden, gathering flowers or chasing the golden bees and butterflies with embroidered wings that the Eldar set within the garden for their joy. And many children have there become comrades, who after met and loved in the lands of men. But of such things, perchance, men know more than I can tell you. Yet some there were who, as I have told, heard the solosimpi piping afar off, or others, who, straying again beyond the garden, caught a sound of the singing of the teleli on the hill, and even some who, reaching Kor afterwards, returned home, and their minds and hearts were full of wonder, of the misty after-memories of these, of their broken tales and snatches of song, came many strange legends that delighted men for long, and still do, it may be, for of such were the poets of the great lands. Those children who went to fairy through the path of dreams and have re returned safely and retained some misty after-memories of their experiences in fairy, those are the ones that become poets, that the strange legends and broken tales and snatches of song that delighted men for long and still do. Fairy tales, fairy stories, right? Tales of wonder. These are the consequence of this connection. So there is, so children, some children at least, have access to this world, but the adult world itself is enriched. So you notice he doesn't say, he, he certainly is not contradicting what he said in On Fairy Stories about the connection, the, the, the necessary connection between fairy stories and children, right? That is, that fairy stories are particularly well suited to children and really you know, primarily a juvenile thing. Um, no, in fact, he goes on to, he, he says here that the fairy stories that we read are the products of adults who have retained and not lost some of what they got in childhood from their experiences in fairy through, um, through the path of dreams. So, um, so once again, I, I think we can see he, he is, in fact, consistent. Not that I think that there's, you know, I know of course, not trying to pretend Tolkien never contradicts himself. Um, he often does. But I, I do think in both of these two things we can see the essential thing that he was trying to say in On Fairy Stories remains true, even is you know, he still did seem to believe that um, way back here. Um, but... Um, but we see him doing, you know, making connections which he doesn't make later on. That is, associating fairies with smallness in a particular way and associating them with children in another particular way, both of which he leaves behind uh, in, his, uh, in his later work. Um, uh, yeah, good. Um, yeah. Um, now, of course, uh, Nancy is already um, wanting to connect the children uh, you know, that he refers to here that uh, some... Let's see, where were where we? Um, uh, yes, and many children have there, uh, that is, in the cottage of the children, become comrades who after met and loved in the lands of men. Um, and Nancy was asking very, very rightly, is Tolkien referring to him self here. Alex was just asking a, uh, a sort of a similar question. Um, 
uh, Alex says, if uh, children are meeting at the co- at the cottage and falling in love as adults, it brings a whole new meaning to finding your dream girl. Yeah, exactly. It's like a, a, a literalization of that cliche. And uh, yes, Nancy, should we be thinking about Tolkien and Edith here? Yes, we should. We have uh, um, sort of Tolkien's warrant for this in the poem, which Christopher Tolkien quite shyly uh, prints at the end of this. Um, and there are a couple things that I would emphasize about this. Um, first, one overarching point before we look at the poem in particular, because of course you knew we were going to look at poetry, right? That's kind of a given. Um, but um, the first thing is um, the Book of Lost Tales is bears lots of evidence, and of course we, we have Christopher explaining this to us in the commentary as well, but even without that, there's, 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 there's evidence that the Book of Lost Tales is itself a compilation. This is not a question of Tolkien sitting down, um, putting pen to paper at the beginning of the, you know, the, cha- you know, the Cottage of Lost Play sequence, the beginning of the frame narrative, and writing the frame narrative and then writing the stories as they go along. Um, it's pretty clear that this is already um, an effort on Tolkien's part to bring together many ideas that he's had, but many also many stories that he's already written, and many um, many concepts that he is drawing from either poems that he's written or stories that he's already written. Um, he's already been thinking about the Arendel story. He's already been working on the Turin Turinbar story. Um, he got, as we're about to see, this whole concept of the Cottage of Lost Play from a poem he had already written a couple years before. This is a pattern that we're going to see. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's interesting for us to, to notice that even here in the very first version of the Silmarillion stuff, the first time that he's trying to do, um, you know, a major connected uh, collection of these stories and legends and myths, um, he's already epitomizing. He's already bringing together. Um, he's he's already essentially anthologizing stories that already existed, um, and the gathering and making them consistent uh, with uh, uh, with each other is work that he already is is attempting to enter into here uh, in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, and that, that, that work, which he starts here, you know, in 1917 and is going to continue uh, all the way through his death, uh, is trying to bring these things all together. Um, but anyway, let's go, uh, the uh, Cottage of Lost play, let's look at the poem. It is, of course, um, though Christopher Tolkien doesn't make this... He's, he's very diffident about this connection. Um, I think it's... I mean, in my reading, it's very clearly an inside joke here. When Vire makes that reference that I was drawing attention to about how how men in song have inaccurately said that that cottage back in Valinor was the cottage of lost play. Um, that is incorrect. That tradition that has grown up among men is incorrect. Well, I don't think very many songs have in fact been sung about the cottage of lost play, but I know one that has, and that's this one, because that's of course exactly true here. The cottage that he's describing is exactly the cottage that was described by, by Vare as the cottage of the children. But of course in the poem it's called the cottage of lost play. So Vare is correcting the poem that Tolkien himself wrote two years ago, right? No, 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 no. That's not the Cottage of Lost Play. That's the Cottage of the Children. This is the Cottage of Lost Play. 
Um, so that that I, I take to be a complete inside joke, basically an inside joke with Edith, who is doubtless the other, the only other human being in the world who has read both the Book of Lost Tales and the Cottage of Lost Play, the poem. Um, so anyhow, um, what we see in the Cottage of Lost Play, um, this is the first stanza. You and me, we know that land, and often have been there, in the long old days, old nursery days, a dark child and a fair. Was it down the paths of firelight dreams, in winter cold and white, or in the blue-spun twilight hours, of little early tucked-up beds in drowsy summer night, that you and I got lost in sleep and met each other there, your dark hair on your white nightgown and mine was tangled fair? Um, the autobiographical element in this poem is perfectly clear. Um, Christopher Tolkien shows the sort of classic Tolkien family reserve to comment on it at all, right? Remember, he has that paragraph afterwards where he's like, you will not need me to point out the personal uh, uh, emotional nature of this poem, um, and he's not going to go any further or, 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 or dish anything more on it, um, because this is the poem about his mom and dad, written by his dad, obviously with his mom in mind, um, when, uh, you know, way back at the beginning of their relationship. Um, yes. But the first thing that I would point out here, the, the one essential thing that's easy for us to overlook, I think, if we f- think of this simply as a kind of love poem from... from uh, you know, from uh, J.R.R. to Edith, and that is the fact that the subject of this story, um, that the presence of these two children in what is within the poem called The Cottage of Lost Play, what is within the tales called The Cottage of the Children, comes first. Um that might seem obvious. Like, well, of course, they both have to get there before they can meet and have these adorable little times together that are described in the poem. Yes, but I think that that's crucially important in understanding the significance of this poem. That is, this is not just a poem about how we met and how you and I were always destined for each other. Rather, it is a poem which begins and primarily emphasizes their shared experience, their shared wonder. They are drawn together because, and only because, in a sense, they have first both been drawn into fairy. Um, because they had that same wonder, because they shared that wonder, because they shared within the world of the poem, within the frame of the Book of Lost Tales, they shared this experience of, in their dreams, going to fairy as children. That is what... Um, that is what uh, uh, enables them to come together. That is what draws them then together as adults. The fact that they were first drawn from uh, the world, the human world, through the path of dreams to fairy, to Valinor. Um, and again, that I think is, is, is really important not to lose sight of that. It's, it's tempting to sort of see the fairy stuff. Again, if, all we've, if, if, if our primary focus in reading this is just on the autobiography and you know, just on the, uh, the love story between Tolkien and Edith, um, we're going to miss the significance of the, you know, really the primacy uh, of the role, I, I would argue the primacy, of the role of the fairy elements there. And that, that link between the world of fairy and the world of, of, of 
uh, of childhood experience that both the frame of the Lost Tales and this poem insist upon. Um, okay, I'm going to talk a little bit about the poetry because I think it's awesome. Um, Tolkien's experimentation with verse forms in his early poetry is really fascinating. I love looking at this stuff. Um, I could spend a lot of time talking about this in the, uh, the Cottage of Lost Play and in um, Cortirion. Um, you don't have time for too much. But here's a fun... Okay, I think it's fun. It it sort of shows exactly sort of what level of, of dork I am. Um, I'm a level 56 dork, by the way. Uh, but anyhow, um, uh, and, and that is, it's fun to go through and look at the rhyme scheme of these poems. Um, notice how this is a 13-line stanza, which is already very unusual. Um, uneven numbers of lines like this. The stanza structures that Tolkien develops, we'll look at this briefly because I can't help myself in Cortirian as well, um, but he, he develops these intricate structures. Look at the rhyme scheme. Um, land, there, days, fair. So we have an alternating rhyme right there and fair with land and days not rhyming. Okay, so rhyming on every other line, that's a standard pattern. It's a looser rhyme, right? We don't have an A rhyme and a B rhyme. You know, it's not, you know, land, there, hand, fair, or something like that, right? Um, um, so it's a looser rhyme scheme, but we have the alternating. Okay, fine. Uh, dreams, white, hours, beds. Wait a second, what happened to the rhyme? None of it rhymes. Oh wait, night. Night rhymes. Night rhymes with white. So now we have we had two unrhymed lines with then matching with two rhymes. We had a four line group, a quatrain, with the two with the rhymes on lines two and four. And now we get a five line group with the rhymes on lines two and five. So it's almost a repeated quatrain structure. But it's imbalanced. It's a five and a five and a four, and we get three unrhymed lines, dreams, hours, and beds in there. And then sleep there, nightgown, fair. The return to that first structure, those first four lines, and not only a return to the four lines with the with the with the the actual the unrhymed unrhymed lines at one and three and the rhymed lines on two and four, but even using exactly the same rhymes, uh, rhyme as in the first one. And not only using exactly the same rhyme, but you'll notice precisely the same words, lines 2 and 4, and lines 11 and 13, end with there and fair, respectively. Right? So you have an exact echo of those. So you have this really interesting combination of of tightly connected rhymes, right? Even the duplication of rhymes like that, and a symmetrical structure, but it's a symmetrical structure that doesn't really pivot anywhere. You've got the, the beginning and the end are the same, but the middle's almost the same, but it's not the same, and it's got an extra line in there, and it's kind of imbalanced, and it's the same way when you have a quatrain structure like that. Again, groups of four lines. Often, one might even say normally, what you would kind of expect is to have those quatrains, those those natural groupings of lines that the rhyming um, that that the you know the rhyming kind of separates out. You would sort of expect them to be um, uh, uh, to be chunks, right? You know, to, so that the, you know you would have it, 
maybe you don't have a period at the end of you know line four, but you know some kind of we see we do have a period at the end of line four, and that's what we would expect, right? You and me, we know that land and often have been there in the long old days, old nursery days, a dark child and a fair. Um, you can see even the rhythm by having lines two and four shorter than lines one and three. Um, it, it again makes us sort of emphasize them more, so it, it links to the rhyme. And that's one single thought, right? So, okay, so we're not expecting another quatrain, right? With a similar rhyme scheme and a similar sort of length, but that's not what we get, right? Was it down the paths of firelight dreams in winter cold and white? Sounds like the same rhythm. We expect the same thing, right? Or, you know, is what we expect, right? That same rhythm, that same sort of finality in four more lines, but we don't get that. Was it down the paths of firelight dreams in winter cold and white, or in the blue-spun twilight hours of little early tucked-up beds in drowsy summer night? That's already imbalanced because we got the two lines there and where we expected one, but it's not even done yet. That you and I got lost in sleep and met each other there, your dark hair on your white nightgown in mine was tangled fair. So not only does that five-line group in the middle not work out the way it's supposed to based on the first pattern, but it enjams directly into the bottom quatrain so that the whole last nine lines are one uh, are one continuous um, and sort of increasingly connected thought. The way that this poem seems to function is with structures that don't quite repeat, rhyme schemes that keep getting distracted, and shifting into other rhyme schemes and shifting back, it avoids. It is regular enough to sound rhythmic. Um, it rhymes enough to be tied together, but it never falls into quite a comfortable rhythm. Um, uh, it's um, it's it's strange. It's 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 a fascinating effect, um, and my own theory. If you want to know my own theory, which may well be a crack brain theory, um, is I think back to the passage that we just were looking at in the in you know the the reference to um, broken tales and snatches of song, um, you know from the misty after memories of these their broken tales and snatches of song. I think that it's conspicuous that this poem, which is about these misty after after memories, which is about this experience that was had in dreams in childhood, which is now distant, and which now has been lost, and which you can't get back to, is not, is imperfect, is um, garbled, structurally garbled. It doesn't, it's, it's a deeply imperfect poem, structurally, but I think it's supposed to be a deeply imperfect poem, um, and I find that really, really fascinating. Um, Right, thank you for uh, indulging my discussion of uh, 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 Tolkien's poetic prosody. Uh, I just absolutely love talking about this stuff. Um, so, I, I appreciate it. Look at the end. This is the revised ending um, that Christopher Tolkien gives to the poem. I find this revised ending uh, particularly fascinating. But why it was there came a time when we could take the road no more, though long we looked and high would climb or gaze from many a seaward shore to find the path between sea and sky to those old gardens of delight, and how it goes now in that land, if there the house and gardens stand, still filled with children clad in white, we know not 
you and I. Notice how in this last stanza we get that reaching back, right? Maybe not quite the completely deranged reaching back that that Vire was talking about, that, you know, that uh, those children who saw too much and could never really recover and never could really fully return to the lands of men. Not quite that far, but still, these glimpses which remain always out of reach and which they, uh, they spend the rest of their life looking for and searching for. Sharon points out that the poem is imperfect, but it retains beauty. Exactly. Even the fragments, um, even, a, even a garbled vision of this still has melody, still, still is melodious and beautiful. Again, though it's, um, you know, the dance is imperfect, um, but you can still detect the rhythm of it. Um, anyway, um, so I think that um, this... Uh, the, I, the, in this ending, we can hear his... Um, his really exploring in verse sort of the other side of the story. Vire is talking, you know, from the fairy point of view, right, um, what it looked like, what you know, why they were trying to... See to make sure the children got back, not only so that their parents wouldn't be upset about the loss of their children, um, but also so that the human world could be enriched by these glimpses of fairy. That seems to be what the Path of Dreams is for, um, is in order to vouchsafe these glimpses and buy them to enrich humanity. And so we can see both that, both that continued longing here, but also the enrichment that it has brought. And again, notice in this in this emphasis, not just in their relationship, right? Um, this is, in the end, certainly, it is a love story. It is a love poem from Tolkien to Edith, but it is not just a love poem at all. Um, it is, first and foremost, a fairy poem, and that is the premise of the love poem. Um, one last thing about children, and then I'll let you go. Um, and that's just to, to sort of make sure that we kind of clarify, because we get children, right, the, the Cottage of Lost Play, you know, the, the one accurately called the children of Lo- the Cottage of Lost Play, um, that Ariel goes to is full of children, too. And so I know it took me several reads before I was, like, totally on board with who the heck these children are. Okay, no, I'm still not 100% sure I know who these children are, but at least I... I, 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 I you know, I've come closer to sorting out the difference between the Cottage of the Children and the Cottage of Lost Play. Um, here's her explanation of who the children are that are currently there. But seeing that no children came there for refreshment and delight, sorrow and grayness spread amongst them, and men ceased almost to believe in or think of the beauty of the Eldar and the glory of the Valar, till one came from the great lands and besought us to relieve the darkness. Okay, so, there was a time when that that passage through the Alora Mare was 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 broken, when children no longer came to the cottage of play, to the to the cottage of the children, or the cottage of the play of sleep, um, and the consequence was the great impoverishment of humanity, a, a, a sorrow and grayness spread among men, and it is this sorrow and grayness, this lack of refreshment and delight, the joylessness of a fairy-free humanity that led one to come from the Great Lands to to beseech the fairies to relieve the darkness of mankind, 
Who would that be? Who did that be? Who's that? Who are we talking about? Any ideas? Arundel. Yeah. Yeah. Arundel. Exactly. Um, yeah. Alex and Brian have it there. Very different context, right? We're not talking about. We're we're very far from, um, you know, the War of Wrath that we get in the Silmarillion. Um, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, now, there is, alas, no safe way for children from the great lands hither, but Meryl E. Turinki heartened, hearkened to his boon and chose Lindo, my husband, to devise some plan of good. Now Lindo and I, Vaire, had taken under our care the children, the remainder of those who found Kor and remained with the Eldar forever. So remember there were some, they tried to make sure as many of them as possible got back, but some of them didn't, right? Some of them did get to Kor, that is the original Kor, the one in Valinor, um, and never returned back to the mortal land. Those children have been gathered together by Lindo and Vaire, um, and so here we builded of good magic this cottage of lost play, and here old tales, old songs, and elfin music are treasured and rehearsed. Ever and anon our children fare forth again to find the great lands, and go about among the lonely children, and whisper to them at dusk, in early bed by nightlight, or in, in candle flame, or comfort those that weep. Okay. Um... Okay, so the children who have remained uh, are the, the children or are the spirits of the children? Still not sure whether the children in the Cottage of Lost Play have bodies. Um, my guess is no, since they're traveling back and presumably not corporeally traveling back, as in by ship, uh, to the Great Lands, to Middle-earth, in order to um, whisper to other lonely children at dusk um, in early bed by nightlight. Um, so that seems to be a sort of spiritual intervention by these children. So in, in other, we see the children who have remained in core continuing to go back to attempt to enrich mankind one lonely, scared, or chidden child at a time. Um... Yeah, Richard says, I think when we're talking of fairy, that's an unimportant distinction, that distinction between are they there corporeally or not. Um, uh, I agree. I, I don't think... I'm not particularly bothered by not knowing for sure. Um, Roy thinks the ambiguity is kind of nice. Um, uh, and uh, I, I, I agree. Um, yeah, Alyssa, thanks for pointing that out. You're right, that passage jumped out at me. Actually, it didn't even jump out. I, I reread this chapter twice before class, uh, and it didn't even jump out. It was the second time I read it this week that it, that I didn't miss it the first time. Um, that we see among the children, as Alyssa has quoted for me, here and there, set in pale fire, uh, set a pale fire in locks gone gray. Some of the children there seem to be old, in fact. <laughs> Which is interesting, and you know, Alyssa, I wonder if that is to if we are to connect that with the um, the becoming small to enter in. That is to say, not all of the children 
you know, the children, so-called, <clears throat> who are there in the cottage of lost play, are necessarily juveniles. Some of the children who are there might be, <laughs> you know, 80, actually. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, that seems to me possible. And I, and I think that would be kind of in the spirit of, again, of that... Uh, not of the diminutiveness, but the diminution that people have to go through in order to enter into the cottage of lost play. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Brian, I agree. I do think the children didn't return to their bodies. We know that their parents grieved. Whether their parents grieved because their child was just gone, you know, missing and presumed dead, or whether they grieved because they found their child's corpse in the morning with its spirit gone and not returned, I don't know. Um, but uh, but we do have as a, as a as a as a as a point of as a fact as a point of reference the grieving of the parents. I you know um, I agree. Um, but um, anyway. Okay, I, I, I should uh, I should have mercy and let you go. One other thing that I wanted to talk about tonight that we didn't get to, and which I will I will carry over into next time, um, is the business with the mythology for England. I want to take a little bit of time looking at the mythology for England. I'm not going to do a full talk on Tolkien's mythology for England as we see it manifested in the Lost Tales, um, mostly because we need to save that. Unfortunately, we need to save that for the chapter which doesn't come into Volume 1, but comes into Volume 2. So we're going to have to save that not just for later on in the course, but for a future course, in fact, uh, for the Alflina of England chapter that we get at the end of Volume 2 of the Book of Lost Tales. However, I will, in, in large part because I know it won't come up elsewhere in this class, um, we're going to... Uh, we're going to talk about it a little bit uh, there. Uh, I kind of lay out a little bit of what we see of what Christopher explains about the mythology for England, and then we are going to look at uh, a, a little bit at Cortirian Among the Trees, because it's poetry, darn it, and we should talk about it. Um, so we'll do that at the beginning of, of, of class next time, and then we will move on to chapter two and three um, of the Book of Lost Tales for next time. And I am, as always, confident that we will get through everything that I could possibly want to talk about in those chapters next week. So, uh, thank you for joining me. I look forward to talking to you guys again next week on Tuesday night, the 27th. For those of you who are watching the recording, you would be very welcome, if you can, uh, to join us live. Go to the webpage and you'll find the registration link uh, for joining the class live. So thanks very much, everybody, for being with us tonight, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.